Hello, and welcome to the MLM.com podcast. I'm your host, Kenny Rollins, and today we're talking with Alan Pollard, who is the president of PayQuicker. And I've actually known Alan for many, many years, um, and he's been in and around the industry and has a lot of experience, so we're, we're excited to talk to him. Alan, how are you doing? Fantastic. It's good to be with you, Kenny. Thanks for joining us. So before we dive in, why don't you go ahead and give our listeners a little bit of background about your experience and, and where you've been and how you got to pay quicker. Perfect. I, uh, I've, I've had a wonderful career in direct sales, always on the technology side, and uh, really had the, the, the opportunity to cut my teeth and really understand the, the, uh, the drivers, the behaviors, the branding. Um, all of those things started with my career at InfoTrax uh, back in 2002 and, and uh, learned <clears throat> really everything I understand about commissions uh, as we were a uh, Infotrax is, is one of the leading back office providers and, and certainly one of the leaders in the in the compensation space. So I, I really got to, uh, to, to just kind of hang on Mark's uh, coattails a little bit and, and understand really the, the inner workings of, of solid compensation plans, both from a, a bonus, uh, commission, promotions, incentives. It's really the whole package. So with that came obviously a really good understanding of, of the operational side, the, the ERP component. Um, from there, I, uh, I moved to the front end and uh, spent uh, time with a company called Icentris, uh, building front end tools and really looking at more of the communications uh, side of it and, and understanding, again, how to take the data um, that uh, was coming out of the systems as you sit and look at transactions and qualifications and all the things that go through. How do we package that up and make that usable uh, for the, the sales force? And so we, we really did a lot of work in, in terms of understanding the career plan and the progression and, and how we could apply data analytics to that so that they, they knew what the next steps were. It, it wasn't really a you know, go find, go hunt. It was actually, you know, doing the, the data analytics, presenting that data in such a format that they could take action on it. So combined with my understanding of backend and commissions uh, from the InfoTrax world and, and being able to apply that on the front end from a communications, from a, um, a marketing perspective, uh, from a certainly from the actual career plan perspective <clears throat> really had a lot of success in, in helping our clients and <clears throat> to deliver the, the the analytics that their teams needed. From there, I uh, I, I ended up um, doing quite a bit of, of consulting work, and I've always enjoyed that part of the industry, working closely with clients uh, in in the launch of operations, uh, in the configuration setup of their entire, you know, infrastructure, uh, both domestic and international, and uh, spent quite a bit of time uh, also with clients just working on on the nuances of, of refreshing a plan, um, the, the enthusiasm of, of a new startup, how do you capture that, how do you fine-tune that and move that into your major markets. So I've spent quite a bit of time doing that, and uh, my most recent uh, career move is, has been to uh, pay quicker. And pay quicker is uh, one of the leading uh, providers of uh, payments, uh, mass global payments. And so it's a little bit different than just moving money from point A to point B. 
Uh, we, we do it on a global basis. There's a lot of requirements from a regulatory standpoint. It's been something that's been new for me as I figured that out, but it really goes hand in hand. You know, when you, when you think about the tremendous risks from a, a, a data security, from a network security, uh, certainly, as we get in, we do a lot with the KYC. So that part of the uh, of the business, really understanding the regula- regulations and and the security components of building a global sales force, and then being able to now how do we pay that sales force and do it efficiently? Um, it, it's been really a fun challenge to to take that on. So. I've I've uh, I've really seen both sides of the industry, front end, back end, and and now kind of back into the network side in terms of really just supporting our our operational teams and delivering global payments, and uh, we we do those things pretty well. It's it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, you know, and it, it is one of those things where I don't think people appreciate the, the complexity when it comes to uh, moving money around and the the regulations that you have to be involved in and. And like you say, the KYC regulations and, and things like that. So I definitely, uh, yeah, what you guys over at PayQuicker do is, is an important part of, of what all, all, all network marketing companies are, are trying to accomplish, which is to empower people to, to make a living. It has been really, I think, one of the most evolving, even rapidly evolving pieces of the business. ACH, direct deposit, has been a hallmark, certainly you know, checks, but uh, it, it is really a rapidly moving space on that. Well, and it is, it is going to be interesting just to see, you know, we were, we were actually, I just got back from a, a trip to India and one of my coworkers was sitting next to a guy uh, who, and the, you know, you're on a 15 hour flight, you've got plenty of time to talk. And he was trying to convince him once he found out the industry we're in that, InfoTrack should create its own cryptocurrency. <laughs> you just think, man, <laughs> yeah, the, the, gone are the days where it was as simple as just cutting a check, right? Yeah. Um, yep. And so, yeah, I, yeah, you guys are on top of what you're doing over there. And like I say, that that is one of the things where I don't think uh, people have an appropriate appreciation of, of what it takes um, to get money from point A to point B because they think it just is is that easy. Yeah, it uh, it really captures a lot that you know the cryptocurrency comes up on a regular basis, and I, I think at some point in time in the future, as as those become more reliable, you know, honestly, crypto is just another currency, and 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 so when you look at the volatility of of, of a currency, that can always present problems for our global enterprises because at some point in time you've got to normalize, standardize, if you will, on on value for product, value for Commissionable, you know, all those things that go into it. And so I, I think the day will come when, when the crypto piece will, uh, will become a little bit more relevant. Right now, it's a little bit early, I think, a lot of volatility in those crypto markets right now. But we certainly hear a lot about those things as well. So Yeah, yeah, and I trust you guys will stay on the leading edge there. So, uh, but, but let's uh, dive into kind of the heart of what we wanted to address today with your experience uh, and your background, I think I think we've got a good conversation lined up. And what we want to talk about is uh, how do network marketing companies stay relevant in the U.S. today? And this is kind of an interesting topic uh, that I know you and I have both had have had conversations with different people in the industry. And and there's 
If you go out and look at a lot of established companies, the sense is that they're either holding stable or declining in the U.S., but not necessarily seeing a lot of growth. And then you've got the legal action or the regulatory action with Vima and Herbalife. And I've heard people express the question of what's the future of direct selling within within the U.S. market. And I'd, I'd be curious to get your your take. What When you hear conversations like that or when you're a part of conversations like that, what's your takeaway given your, your background? You know, I, I think this is a, a great topic. And, and uh, you know, I've had some interesting conversations with certainly with young companies as well as many of our, you know, multinationals. And I, I think the real challenge is if I could, if I could be so bold, is just simply sticking with the basics, and and that might sound a little bit cliche-ish, but um, with so much going on, you know, the the thing that uh, we've just talked about, boy, we're we're talking about, you know, just the infrastructure to support, um, you know, a product and and a field force and all of the components of product delivery and payments and commissions and communications. Those are those are very complex processes that uh, many times are automated with software, et cetera. Well, now you compound that. You simply, you know, as you move into multiple markets, as you start to expand internationally, it goes well beyond just language and currency and location, but being able to, to manage all that. So my, my point in saying that is, you know, you look at some of our, our, our hallmark companies in the industry that have just done a phenomenal job um, in operating in 15, 20, 30 different countries, certainly, you know, it takes time and energy and, and certainly where, where the companies end up having the most success, typically those are where they're going to focus their resources. And so it takes a lot of discipline, I think, for our, for our global companies to be able to manage, to balance. Um, there's only 24 hours in a day. There's X number of dollars. X number of resources, and so certainly companies do, I think, a great job of, of taking advantage of opportunities, but that may mean that in some cases there, there might be less focus, uh, maybe less energy um, around a particular uh, market in a company. I think the other thing that's critically important, and, and you know, we've chatted about this a little bit, I, I really think the, the solution to our U.S. markets um, is is one of the one of the great opportunities I believe personally is great brand with a great direct selling model. I I, I am very bullish um, on uh, on the U.S. market, but I think what we're seeing is the maturation of the U.S. market in comparison to maybe some of the other international markets, who who frankly are probably ten, fifteen, maybe twenty years behind, not necessarily in terms of the infrastructure or technology, but just simply the overall direct selling business model. When we look at the U.S., they've been the leader in the direct selling space for so many years. And so I think from a certain you know kind of perspective, if we looked at it from just purely a, a business life cycle or a product life cycle, I think it's pretty clear that direct selling in the U.S. has moved into the very mature market space. It's not a, an emerging market. It's very much a mature market. And so what does that mean? Well, I, I think personally, I think the success that I've seen with clients, it is a laser focus on their product um, with a very, very specific brand. And when I say brand, that's all-inclusive. It's understanding the the specifics of the target market that they're serving 
Um, it's understanding the specifics of the of the consumer behaviors and how they're going to consume that product, and and then being able to put a very very compelling, uh, you know, brand Marcom uh, communicate all those things that that build around successful brands. Our companies that are doing those kinds of things, and we're seeing a lot of activity. I think Kenny, if you sit back and really look overall, we're seeing a lot of our U.S. companies start to embrace more of a consumer-centric brand management, even in direct sales, so that the consumer leads, the product leads, the benefits, the solution, whatever it might be, those are the lead uh, for the direct sales force, rather than, as we as we well know, the direct sales uh, industry has had the ability to lead with more of the, the business opportunity. So I think we're seeing that pendulum swing and and as our companies, I think, really embrace um, this kind of new millennium a little bit, I, I think we're going to see some tremendous uh, successes within the direct sales space. But again, I think it's going to be led by a focus on consumer, a focus on product, a focus on that overall consumer experience. And, and those are the things I think are going to really lead the, the, the upgrowth in, in the U.S. market. Yeah, and, and I definitely agree with you. And I'm like you, I'm I'm pretty bullish on direct selling as a model, e- even within the U.S. And I, I've seen a lot of companies, uh, even as startups, have a lot of success 100% domestically here in the U.S. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things I've seen over time is there's a certain sense of urgency to to go international because people oftentimes wear it as kind of a, a badge of honor uh, and 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 think that it's kind of a, a ticket to the the big boys table, so to speak. Um, and without realizing some of the things that you hit on, that there's a, a lot of infrastructure that goes into that, into supporting um, even just a few markets. And the thing that's interesting, I think technology, while it simplifies things, Kenny, it's actually part of the problem because technology is what's allowing companies, I think, to maybe expand a little bit irrationally because the, the technology base does allow us to support a global sales force. So it is a kind of a catch-22 on that. Well, you know, and one of the, I totally agree with you. And the other thing that I think kind of plays into that is that the psychology of – thinking of them in terms of countries, right? So the U.S. is one country, but as you pointed out as we were preparing for this call, there are some states within the U.S. that have economies larger than than some of the markets that people are opening up. And so I do think there comes a point where uh, if you're, you know, you talked about staying disciplined, I I think there can be a lack of discipline in saying, okay, well, we're going to start expanding internationally when really, uh, you could start expanding into uh, the middle of the U.S. Or, or, and especially with the data that we have, you can see what regions in the U.S. Uh, have not taken hold. And there's a real opportunity to go there and, and start up without a lot of the infrastructure costs that you incur uh, by going overseas. But then another thing that I think you hit on that, that is big is kind of the the – change of philosophy. And I I think a lot of this came out of kind of the great recession that we had, you know, a decade ago, where leading up to that, everybody was just looking for opportunities, business opportunities. And now I I think we have gotten a little bit more realistic um, and a little bit more 
we've got a better perspective as an industry, and that I think combined with um, some of the regulatory actions that have come, where we are now more consumer focused. And if you're going to be consumer focused, you've got to be product focused, right? Or else, uh, or or else there is no opportunity there. And by opportunity, I don't mean in the MLM sense, just as as a business. Um, and so I think those are the companies that we're seeing really rejuvenate or really thrive within the U.S. market is people who are uh, product focused, have that new mentality and stay disciplined on saying, OK, we're going to really focus on the U.S. until it really is time to go international. Well, and again, if you take that very sharp focus uh, from a product standpoint, you, you recognize that as you move your products and services from one country to the next, obviously that's going to require some modification uh, to, to your products and services to meet the cultural, to meet the target market audiences in those countries. And I, I think that's some of the things that maybe <clears throat> we, we view the opportunity as kind of the great equalizer. It's, it's the common, if you will, and then we'll do what we need to with the products. Whereas with that extreme product focus, that customer experience, you know, again, you, you have a much broader uh, swath of the country. Um, if you're pure business opportunity, you tend to see those, those, those hot spots, if you will, um, where a particular region in the U.S. or particular states in the U.S., just by the nature of, of the direct sales network marketing component. So I, I think it is an exciting time. That's why I, I really believe, you know, as I've been through the last couple of months, I've, I've had a chance to sit in on some of the regulatory meetings, some of the board meetings, uh, some of the conferences that, that are dealing with this overall, and, and some great dialogue, great conversations, perspectives um, that are coming out of that. But, but at the end of the day, um, what, what I think it's going to help all of us to do is, is to find the segments within our, within our market that are going to work. We're seeing now from a regulatory spot, we just simply have to separate out customers, uh, both retail and preferred customers. We've got to separate. There's got to be a clean, clear line of demarcation between those folks and our distributor force. And again, what does that mean? Well, we've got to be a product-centric company. We've got to be able to, to provide a true product value, both in terms of, of the cost, the delivery, all those different things. You know, one of the things that I find fascinating is the disruption that we're starting to see with Amazon. I mean, for 100 bucks a month, I, I feel bad because my wife loves Amazon and we've got grandkids across the country. So that two-day free shipping with that Prime membership I mean, we're getting our money's worth on that deal because it, it, it's just something that she uses on a regular basis. And she doesn't even think about going anywhere else because shipping is free at Amazon. That's a disruptor. And, and so we're starting to see even those kinds of basic fundamentals there where, where it's not necessarily competing within the industry, but it's, it's competing overall in, in, in the general consumer space. So I've seen many of our clients that are really taking a good hard look at, okay, what is the expectation for a consumer customer experience? And, and it's not just about the product and the price, but it's also, again, about the delivery mechanisms, about the, the customer support, as well as the price that goes into that. So again, clean, clear segmentation between our customers, both retail and preferred, and, and then providing that opportunity. I believe as we move through this, maybe a little bit of a trough, if you will, I think we're going to emerge much stronger because, again, if you look at the hallmark of a successful distributorship, what is it? 
Well, it's retention. It, it's being able to keep the folks that I bring into the business and that I'm not having to replace those on an annual basis. So those companies who have truly mastered that, that product component and that customer experience, while it does take energy and it does take effort and it does, in fact, take costs away, um, what we're finding is that the retention rates of those companies are much, much stronger. So several of the clients that I've talked to, I mean, we, we talk a lot about what, you know, back in the day, you and I would have this argument about what is the, what is the right commission plan? What is the right commissionable amount? And, and what we're starting to see a little bit is that that commission is being divided up a little bit differently in this world because some of those funds that may have gone to our salespeople, to our team leaders, to our executives, what we're seeing is a little more investment in the customer experience. And so as we talk about promotions and incentives, frankly, one of the big number one items is is the shipping component. So how do we, again, you know, incentivize and create retention utilizing a free shipping program and how do we pay for that? Those are all the things that, that the clients I've been working with are, are, are wrestling with. And, and there's some great solutions to it. it really is. You know, and that, that is a good point, especially, you know, bringing it back to the area where I, I spend most of my time in commissions is I, I think you are going to see, as you kind of alluded to a continual evolution of how commissions are divided up. And there are, you know, one of the things that, that I've, really liked in, in the way that I've seen things going is uh, using some of those resources to create good um, loyalty programs to cre- to create, you know, things like you're talking about where, okay, well, how do we go and compete with Amazon? You know, is there a model where we can do a free shipping type thing? And, you know, uh, kind of going back to your comment on Amazon, I've had people talk to me and say, you know, with, with the internet, like it is, is there really a place uh, for direct sales. And I actually think if you look at the way that the, the internet and e-commerce is evolving and even Amazon is evolving is there is value in having somebody, you know, and trust recommend something, uh, because there's so much information and counter information and counter counter information out on the internet. And even, you know, you pointed this out yesterday when we were, were talking about the direction we wanted to go on this podcast, you do start to get skeptical of reviews, right? If something's got a hundred reviews, uh, how many of those are employees who are encouraged to go give a, a promising review? And so, and you've seen it even culturally where people are questioning data sources, right? You, I mean, fake news is probably the term of 2017 and probably going to continue to be so for, for quite a while. Um, and, and so when so many of the sources of information are continually being questioned, one of the things that people do appreciate still is that personal relationship and that willingness to, to share things personally. And that's where I think uh, referral programs, I think, play into what you're talking about. Uh, and, and so in a lot of ways, as an industry, I, I think we are going to come out of this better off because I think it's going to highlight more of the value of the education component of direct sales and the personal referral program of direct sales or the personal referral aspect of direct sales. And I think that fits beautifully into an overall brand management strategy. You know, it's interesting to look at some of the 
you know, the dominant brands, there's almost a cultural, you know, following, you know, there, there's, there's clearly a, an audience, a user group, if you will, that they, they share a lot of similar traits that culturally there's, there's a willingness to share a willingness to get together. Boy, those are the hallmarks of, of a direct sales team. And, and I, that's where I, I, again, if I sit back, just, you know, if I'm a corporate executive and, and looking at my distribution options, there's, there's really only four. Uh, there, there, there's really, you know, I've got, I've got my retail component, which we've, we've seen the struggles and challenges of that. The e-commerce has become so crowded, so busy, and frankly, so competitive. That, that's a cutthroat side of the business that, that our brick and mortar teams are, are worried about as they've launched online. Then we've got the pure e-commerce play. There is a lot of competition in that space. And we're starting to see because of that, we're starting to see most products get commoditized so quickly because it just comes down to that lowest common denominator. Then you've got basically Amazon and and some folks may say, well, goodness, Amazon, they're an e-commerce. No, they're, they're kind of the 80,000 pound gorilla. They, they have, they have disrupted so many industries and have done to, to e-commerce what Walmart did to retail 25 years ago. So those are things that it, it's, it's really interesting to see these models kind of play out a little bit. Well, the, the fourth one that I think, again, has such tremendous possibilities is our direct model. It, it, it is our ability, again, with a strong brand management strategy to attract a very specific segment of users. And I, I think that's where a lot of our companies are going. I, I think many of our companies had the luxury five, 10 years ago to take a more general swath, a, a more you know, horizontal swath of a particular market. And I think really what we're seeing in today's world, and again, in a mature market, when you look at the simple you know, availability of products that are almost endless, it, it really requires a strong focus on that target audience with a great brand strategy wrapped around that. And, and then you, as you pointed out the the power of the the network the power of the personal relationships the the belonging component of feeling like the 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 product the company that I'm a part of is is more than just a great product experience they believe the same things that I believe they they support and and focus on the same things I believe we start to see all of those things really playing out in a traditional brand strategy. And I think that's where our companies are going to be fantastic at doing. And and again, it's going to take a little bit more focus and, and a little more brand strategy around that. But as those things continue to evolve, I believe the sky's the limit. And and I'm totally on board with you there. And I, I think to your point on, on brand management, uh, I mean, that is the, the, the thing about the internet and social media today is, you know, your reputation can take a hit and it can take a hard hit quickly. Um, but likewise, if you if you take care of your customers and if you, uh, you know, keep your nose clean, so to speak, um, you can have the power of that brand get out very quickly. And 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 that is another area where I think uh, we're going to see people harness technology more and more. You know, it's always a reactive type thing, right? People will harness new technology and then companies try to figure out how to live within that space. Um, and, and protecting your brand and really having brand in mind, I think is going 
to to be key to to thriving within the United States, and we and we've seen that with a number of companies. But the ones who have a good name that can spread like wildfire as well. Yeah, really true. And and you know some of that <clears throat> obviously has been driven by you know a, a little more focus from the FDA uh, in terms of product claims, advertising claims. There's certainly a number. Of, of organizations that that have jurisdiction as well as just a genuine concern for consumer protection and technology. What does that mean? Well, that means that, boy, I'll tell you, if, if you don't have a, a strong brand that you can use to train, educate, and and really keep your sales team and your, for that matter, your preferred customer and customers, keep them focused on, on what really matters, well, it can create all kinds of problems, and, and and that's what we see. You know, when the regulators step in, it's just not that difficult because of technology, social media. Boy, it doesn't take much for them to identify potential violations of of consumer protection, and then obviously, you know, on the business side, we we've, we've got to worry about again income claims and those kinds of things. That to me, that that's the that is the the, the direct benefit of a, of a strong brand management because as folks buy in, whether that is from the, the customer retail preferred side or whether it's from our, our consultants or distributors, those are things that, again, we get great alignment um, between the product valuation and, and the business opportunity. When those things are aligned, those potential violations or those errors or those omissions, whatever we want to call them, they are dramatically reduced when when the true value of of the product and the opportunity get to shine. It's it's in those areas, and this is where I think companies have struggled a little bit. It's in those areas where there's not a strong value proposition on the product, or there's not a clear target audience for that distributor or consultant to pursue that all of a sudden, you know, we find that we have to tell more of a story or we have to talk more about potential uh, benefits than we should need to. Again, that's where I think the responsibility falls back onto our corporate marketing and brand management teams because as those things align and we get that crystal clear laser focus on the product value, the target audience, those things just seem to align. And a lot of those fringe problems of, you know, being able to sell the benefits of, of either the business or the product, I think those really get minimized the stronger that that messaging and branding is. Absolutely agree with you. And I, you know, I, I think we'll end it right there because I, I think you've really brought to light uh, some key thoughts um, and some key insights. And I will say I, I led the the podcast off, you know, kind of leading in on the U.S., but I think these are, are are principles that that we'll see translate overseas uh, and internationally, but it's really about having that that deliberate and disciplined approach that's going to make you succeed in any market. Uh, but I think, kind of to summarize what both of us have said, there there's nothing that I would point to um, and tell me if you disagree that that would say that that people should be afraid of the health of the U.S. market. I, I think uh, I think the beauty of the free market is is we learn from our mistakes. We we learn from a loss, <laughs> and and sometimes when we're always winning and and things are going well, sometimes it's tough to self evaluate. But uh, 
the, the companies, the, the executive teams that I've worked with, gosh, just fantastic teams, fantastic people, uh, great brands. Um, we, we, we're resilient. We, we're going to learn from, from a downturn, and, and I, I think we'll come back uh, with flying colors. Yep. No, I, I 100% agree. Alan, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we look forward to having you on the show again soon. Thanks so much, Kenny. It's good to be with you again. And that concludes today's episode. Thanks for joining us on the MLM.com podcast. Again, I'm your host, Kenny Rollins, and I want to give a special thank you to Alan Pollard of PayQuicker for his time today. I also want to thank Adam Holdaway and Janet Bangeter for production support. We hope you'll join us again next time.